Please be seated. Uh, so we are going to be in the book of Genesis, that wonderful Christmas book of Genesis. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, the book of Genesis, right there at the beginning of the Bible. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. And uh, what we've been doing over the course of this season is we, in our Advent series, we've come to our final Advent series sermon, obviously. And so we've been thinking about this child that was born to us. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, promises us some 700 years before Christ shows up that a child is going to be born to us, a son is going to be given to us. Uh, And we have been thinking about the son, so the language that the Bible uses in reference to this son that was given to us. We've looked at the fact that the Bible says that Jesus, the son that was born, was the son of God. And we thought about the fact that that meant that he was holy, that he is the son of man, that that means that he has all dominion, that Son of Abraham, that means he's the hope of all peoples. The son of David, which means that he's the forever king. The son of Mary that we looked at last week, which helped us to understand that Jesus was humble. And he works through humble people. And today we consider the son of a woman. That's sort of strange language, in a sense, in terms of the biblical language of it. But it wasn't strange to the Apostle Paul, the man that wrote some 17 of the New Testament's 27 books. He says, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And we get another allusion to this language of born of a woman in 1 Timothy 2.15, that strange passage that some of you sometimes struggle to think about, where it says in 1 Timothy 2.15 that she, speaking of the woman, will be saved through childbearing, which is an often, often strange passage, but when we actually look at the original language beneath that English, it says, through the bearing of the offspring. And of course, that offspring is the child, the the, the offspring that is born of a woman is the child, Christ the Lord. That's how women are saved, and that's how all men are saved that give their life to Jesus. They trust the offspring, Christ the Lord, the promised one, the one that was born to Mary on that Christmas day. We even get the language of this language of woman, the son of a woman, even Uh, In the book of John, where we see Jesus referring to his mother at least two times on two occasions where he calls her the woman. Uh, And so I think what he's doing there in the book of John, uh, in Jesus calling her the woman, is he's giving us a hint. He's pointing us back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the Lord says that through the offspring of the woman will come one that will bruise the head uh, of the serpent and he will bruise his heel. It's a strange passage that we'll think a bit more and hopefully come to understand a bit more this morning. But this is why Jesus came to the earth. This is why the Son of God took on flesh, was to bruise the head of the serpent, to be born of a woman in order to destroy, here it is, sin and Satan. That's why Jesus came. And so as we celebrate this Christmas morning, the coming of Christ to the earth, our eye is on the mission of Christ. As to why he came in the first place. Again, to crush sin, Satan, and death. And so I like to think about Jesus, and baby Jesus in particular, uh, sort of like those final epic scenes of the movies, those great movies, you know. Uh, Just yesterday, our family was watching The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. We like to think about those final epic scenes. If you've seen it, you're familiar with Aslan, who's supposed to be the Christ figure, as he stands upon the rock and shouts very loudly just before he goes down and they conquer the white witch's evil uh, armies. Or we can think about maybe the Lord of the Rings, where we think about the king when he returns. He's mounted on this 
beautiful white horse. The sun is shining at his back as the army descends down to defeat the evil armies of Sauron. But in this story, the story by which all great stories are based upon, we find that the hero shows up right at the end in order to defeat the enemy, and he does not come with a roar like a lion or mounted on a strong horse, not yet anyway. No, the final epic scene just before the defeat of the great king, or just before the defeat of the evil uh, Satan, is a little baby crying. Quite different than those other scenes, isn't it? Not exactly maybe what we would expect from Hollywood, but just as we saw last week, it is what we would expect from God in the Bible. Because the Lord loves to show his power through weakness and through people that seem weak in the eyes of the world. And so as we think about that nativity scene, there he is, the baby Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one of whom the government of the world rests upon, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. There he is, lying in a manger, crying. Born of a simple, humble woman whose husband has a simple job as a carpenter from that tiny town of Nazareth, by which Nathaniel would later say again that nothing good comes from that tiny town. And yes, this child, the one that is born on Christmas Day, he's going to be the one that will wipe all the sins uh, of those that believe. He's going to wipe those sins away. And so that brings us here to our passage in Genesis chapter 3, where we see in Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the Bible, God creates the world. He says that it's very good. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, the Lord takes his image bearers, Adam and Eve. He brings them together. He introduces the covenant of marriage. He has them to work the land, to have dominion over the world. And then he he tells them to eat of all the trees except one. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Lord says to Adam and Eve, do not eat of that tree. That's chapter 2. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, we see a serpent comes to tempt Eve to do just that, to eat of that tree that they were not supposed to be eating. And so... The evil one, actually in the form of the serpent, begins to tempt her in that way. And we know that Eve eats of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one that they were not supposed to eat. And by the way, you guys, if you want to blame shift on the ladies, guess who was standing right there? It was Adam. So Adam ate of that tree too. And so because of that, sin and death enters into the world. And all of creation is stained as Adam and Eve then are separated from God because of their sin. The one that the God that they were made to, we were made to, created in his image, made to know, to enjoy, to image, to reflect. So because they have been they've sinned against God, they therefore are separated from God because God is holy. And so they are then kicked out of Eden and all and then sin and brokenness and death enter into our world. And that came as a result of both Adam and Eve choosing to sin, but also because of the temptation of Satan, the evil one, in the form of that servant. And so all of us. All of us have chosen to be just like Adam and Eve and sin against God through trying to be like him as Adam or as the serpent would try to tempt Adam and Eve to be like God, to know good and evil. And so sin, friends, is the deepest problem in our world. It's the deepest problem in our world. Our problems are not primarily economical. They're not primarily educational. They're not primarily medicinal. They're not primarily political. They're theological. They're theological. See, our sin has separated us from a very good creation uh, that was created by a very good God. We've, we've been separated by uh, our sin from God, the one that made us for his glory. 
And so that brings us to the passage there, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. And here we're going to read the Lord's words to the uh, serpent, the one that tempted Adam and Eve. So here it is, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. We are going to see the penalty and the promise of sin. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, tempted Adam and Eve, caused them to sin. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now listen to the language. And he, notice this third person singular, and he shall bruise your head. And you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. So that's the passage there. So the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve... Uh, and is now cursed by the Lord, we now know to be Satan. We know this to be Satan. Now we get a number of hints in the passage itself. If you looked in there in Genesis 3 that this is Satan, because you'll notice, first off, in verse 14, this is not just any serpent, it's the serpent is being addressed. You see there in verse 14. That would give us an indication that this is not just some random uh, serpent, but this is Satan. It's a serpent of a particular designation. Uh, so it's one serpent. It's not just serpents in general. It's the serpent, the one that deceived Adam and Eve with his words. But also in verse 15, we get another indication that it is Satan there because it says that there's going to be this struggle between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And so that would seem to indicate that this serpent was more than some slithering snake that could talk. It has offspring that's going to war against the offspring of the woman. So that tells us that this serpent has to be something more than just a snake. But finally, all of these shadows become very clear when under the power of the inspiration of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul says in Revelation 12, 9, that, quote, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. So we see Satan is cursed there in that passage, Genesis 3. And yet there's going to be this struggle between uh, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. And that leads us to the question, who exactly are the offspring of Satan? Uh, That is being referenced there in Genesis 3. Well, the answer to that, friends, is anyone that chooses to do just like Satan. Or just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. That anyone that chooses to disobey the will of God. That is who the offspring of Satan are. Anyone that chooses to disobey God and go on to kind of follow their own path, as it were. And this, friends, seems to be the same way that Jesus understood this passage because we see him speaking to the unbelieving in John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus says this to the unbelieving. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You see there? So the difference is, is Jesus understands that that the father of those that don't believe is just trying to get people to live inside of lies, not trying to obey the truth. And anyone that is described that way, that's trying to disobey God, they are the seed of the serpent, as it were. And so the second question then is, is who's the seed of the woman? Well, that's the whole point of what we're trying to answer this morning in this sermon. Uh, But I'll come back to that in just a moment. We've already alluded to the fact that it's Jesus. But just for now, I want you to see that there is the text is telling us there's going to be this enmity, this struggle between the offspring of Satan and the, the people of Satan 
uh, and also those who are of the seed of the woman. They're going to war against each other. And so we have there in Genesis chapter 3, 14 down to 19, the, the setting forth of the entire plot line of the rest of the Bible. And since the Bible is about our world, we could say that Genesis 3, 14 to 19 is setting the entire plot line for the whole world. That's telling you what's happening. Why? So you ask the question, why is there struggle? You heard uh, Chris was praying for those difficult things today. Why is there this struggle in the world? Well, that's why. Genesis 3 tells us why it's there. It's there because uh, we have this promise of these two offspring warring against each other. And so... We then, are be, we then are able to answer this question that maybe some of you have asked. Since we've got this offspring that's going to be tracked, namely the offspring of a woman, that's the good guy, that's going to be Jesus, that answers the question why there's so much genealogy in the Bible. You ever wondered that? Those of you that are familiar with the story of the Bible, you ever wondered why there's so much the so-and-so was the son of so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and on and on it goes. Why is there so much genealogy in the Bible? Well, this is why. Because the authors understand that they're trying to track the seed of this promise in Genesis 3.15. That one is going to crush the head of Satan. And they're looking for him. They know that, she, that he has to come from the line of this woman that's being promised. And so it's because the authors knew the answer to the problems between God and man. The problems in our world are bound up in this promise. And so the answer was going to be found again by the he. Look at verse 15 again. A he, notice it's not a they at verse 15. We'll read it again. I will put in between, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Again, notice the third person singular. And he, it's an individual, it's a person. He shall bruise, or some translations would say crush your head, the serpent's head. And yet at the same time, as the singular person comes to crush the head of the serpent, what do we find happening to the one that's crushing? Well, his heel is going to be bruised. In other words... In the process of crushing Satan, the one that's going to come from the woman is going to get hurt in the process. Of course, this is going to remind us very much of the cross, won't it? So this is happening right at the very beginning. And so Jesus, this is why Jesus came. This is the seed of the woman. Here it is. The he of verse 15 is pointing to Jesus Christ the Lord. We find that all through the scriptures, if you were to go back to Matthew chapter 1, they track the lineage down from Abraham, from David to Jesus. Because they understand Jesus is the answer to all the promises of the Old Testament that God had made. This is why Jesus had come into the world. This is why Christmas is being celebrated. Because we see Jesus was entering into the world to crush the serpent, to crush Satan, to crush sin in the world. His mission is to bring about the eradication of sin, Satan, and death. So it's important that we understand that. He is the, Jesus is the he of the promise, the original promise of promises to crush sin, Satan, and death. And so Jesus' mission, friend, don't forget this, and, and make sure and hear this clearly. Jesus' mission was not simply to eradicate the social injustices of the world, nor was it to educate the world with a better ethic so we could all be better people. That's not why Jesus came, not ultimately anyway. Jesus, the Son of God, incarnated himself as a man in order to destroy the root of all of our problems. And so saying that Jesus came merely as a good teacher or a religious teacher or a social revolutionary is akin to kind of pulling the tops of weeds out without actually trying to get down to the root to pull them out. So 
so you're not going deep enough to understand his mission and what he was really about. So let me give you a little survey as to how I see in scriptures that this is how other people understood Jesus' mission. So we can look at John the Baptist. You remember him? We've read about him already this morning. John the Baptist, we saw he was preparing the way for the Lord. And how was he doing that? By offering a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Even when John the Baptist sees Jesus, the first words that he says is, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So John understood that Jesus' mission was to come and to eradicate sin. And then we even look, we listen to the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus preaches in Mark 1, 14 and 15. And we see there that he's preaching of the kingdom, commanding all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. So that's repent from sin, believe the gospel that overcomes sin. Jesus himself said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. And then we find also in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus says, I have not come. So here it is. Why does Christmas, why, why, why is Jesus coming to the world? Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We can even think about Jesus in his final hours before the cross. Those of you that are familiar with the story, Jesus is struggling with this mission because he does not want to be forsaken by his heavenly father. And he struggles and he says, if there's another way, let there be another way. But then he concludes, he says, but it was for this reason I have come. In other words, he understood that the cross was why he came to make a payment for sin. We even read his beloved apostle John. Uh, in 1 John 3.8, if, if you want a Christmas verse that maybe would shock some people next year, you know, write this verse on your Christmas card next year. Listen to this one. Why does Jesus come? 1 John 3.8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Listen here. The reason the Son of God appeared, why? Was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8. The Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Timothy 1.15, says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners. And so, friends, don't believe anyone that's telling you that Jesus Christ and the purpose of his ministry was anything other than coming to destroy sin, Satan, and death. And so this, friends, is the joy of Christmas. Maybe not the Christmas sermon you were coming in here expecting to hear, right? All about the devil and sin and Satan and all this stuff. But guys, this is why Jesus came. This is the joy of Christmas, that Christ was coming, sort of like Aslan in the movie, roaring, and that king about to come down the hill to defeat all the evil armies. This story is the joy of sort of instead of Aslan screaming, we got a baby crying, knowing he's come into the world and he's going to make it right. And that's why we celebrate. It's the appearing of the Son of God to destroy the enemy that has caused so much damage to so many people by convincing them that God is not good and that they don't need Him. And they can be like God and live how they please. Jesus has come to make that lie exposed. That lie that began in the Garden of Eden that has continued to be spoken to a thousand times ten thousand people in a thousand different cities. That God is not good. That His ways are not good. Uh, Jesus is coming to expose that lie. And just like Adam and Eve, friends, I believe that today there are throngs of people, throngs of people have been banished like Adam and Eve from paradise. And they have been left alone to try and create meaning on their own, either in self-made religions or in self-made living. And so banished that all kind of the Adam and Eves of the world now flood the world. 
groping in the darkness to try to find life and everlasting joy. And they are disappointed and they keep groping in the darkness, continuing to believe Satan's deception. Wondering how they can get back to paradise. And so as we find here in this passage, when we think about Christmas, our hero enters into the picture. Again, not roaring like a lion, not mounted on a great war horse. Again, not yet anyway, but lying in a manger. And eventually he would be seated on a donkey, eventually fastened to a bloody cross. And eventually out of an empty tomb, from that tomb, come out. And then eventually now as he sits at the right hand of the Father with an occupied throne. And so he's made a way, Jesus has, through the gospel, through his substitutionary sacrifice for sin. His sinless sacrifice for sin. Because he was perfect, he can therefore stand in the place for those of us that aren't, which is all of us. And because he's done that, he's made a way back to Eden, back to paradise. He's the only way to get back there. That's how he understood himself. And guys, by the way, Christmas is the evidence that God hates sin. Christmas is the evidence. This is how much he hates it, that he would send his son into the world to take on flesh, to eradicate sin, Satan, and death. And so I want us to think about this. So I have a couple Christmas stories that are stuck in my mind. And one of them is of my grandmother. Uh, My grandmother, if you know my kids, Elisha Giles Knight, he's named after my grandmother. My grandmother was the first person in my family to come to know the Lord. And as a little boy, maybe 10, 11, 12 years old, I can still remember, we would go back to Tennessee every year for Christmas. And I went into the room and I remember my grandmother asking me, what's the most important day of the year? I thought I had the best answer. I said, well, it's got to be Christmas. Christmas is the most important day of the year. And my, le- my logic was pretty good. So I said, well, listen, if Christmas doesn't happen, nothing else can happen, right? So logic is pretty good. So it wasn't a bad answer. It just wasn't the right answer. So my grandmother went on to instruct me. I've never forgotten this. She went on to re- instruct me that Christmas is not the most important day of the year. Easter is the most important day of the year. Because that is when the check cleared, as it were, to make a way for sin, Satan, and death to be eradicated. And so we have a way back home. And so my grandmother was right. The whole reason Christ was born was not just to be born, but he was born to die, to raise on that third day. So as to make a way back to Eden, back to paradise, back to home, reconciliation with God and even his good world. And so today, when we leave from our service today, we are going to go back home. And our kids have not yet opened their gifts. Uh, They've had like a little stocking, so they've got a few gifts. But uh, they get three gifts every year. They have not. Jesus got three gifts, so we give them three gifts. And so um, they'll go back and we've already told them this morning that the most important gift of all is nothing of these. So enjoy the toys. Have fun with the toys. Love the toys. But remember, those gifts point to the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. That's the reason why we trade gifts is to remind ourselves of the greatest gift of all, Jesus the Christ, the one that makes a way back to paradise by overcoming sin, Satan, and death. And so we get to go back home if we trust Christ, if we know Him. Uh, Jesus once said Himself uh, that in this world you will have much trouble. We can say amen to that, right? In this world you will have much trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world, He said. And that's what we celebrate this Christmas Day, this gift of Jesus Christ. There's this wonderful song that I know all of you know, probably, I think most of you know. uh, You've probably sung it many times. It's called, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Uh, It was written by a guy by the name of Philip Brooks in 1865. 
Great story. He was on his way from Jerusalem up to Bethlehem, the city where Jesus was born. He's on his way. He's mounted on a horse, and he writes this song, the little town of Bethlehem, on the back of that horse, on his way to Bethlehem, uh, where he was going to go and help lead a Christmas service, a midnight Christmas service in the city of Bethlehem. Wouldn't it be great to spend Christmas in Bethlehem? So he's on his way in 1865 on this horse, and he writes this song. He writes this song, and listen to the first stanza again. You've heard it before, but just listen, thinking now about what we've been thinking about, about why Jesus has come. It says, O little town of Bethlehem, again, the city where Jesus was born, prophesied to have been born. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light. in Christ. The hopes, it's my favorite line, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So we have a lot of people in the world that are living on those dark streets, don't we? And they're looking for that everlasting light. And they feel like they're sitting on dark streets. And maybe that's some of you here this morning. Christmas sort of for you is like living on dark streets. And maybe your life has sort of seen that way over the past, gosh, the rest of 2016 has felt that way. Like you're living on a dark street. Well, I just want you to know that there's an everlasting light that has come. And he is the answer to all of our hopes and all of our fears. They're met in him. So he, Jesus, meets the hopes of our forgiveness, the desire of wanting to have forgiveness. Can I ever be forgiven? He meets those. The hopes of joy. Can I ever have joy? Yes, in Christ you can. The hopes of family. The hopes of a better city. The hope of, a, a hope of being with a gracious and good God. Jesus is the answer to all of that. Hopes and fears of all the years are met in Him. He makes that possible. And He also answers our fears by relieving them on the cross of Christ and in the resurrection. Listen to how the author of Hebrews says that. It says, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He, that's Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things. In other words, he became a baby and became a man. And we ask the question, why? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver those who through fear, fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So that brings us back to the beginning of our sermon, doesn't it? That idea of an offspring, the seed of a woman. We see that the seed of a woman is also the seed of Abraham, which we've already talked about that. But so the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in Christ. And his fears, uh, all the fears are taken away through his crushing Christ or crushing Satan on the cross. And so those that have repented and believed this gospel, repented of that sin and hoped in Christ and his sacrifice for sin, uh, you that have done that, that are turning from sin, walking with Jesus, well, listen, this passage teaches us you are the offspring of Abraham. You're the offspring of Abraham, which means, according to that passage, he helps you, not angels, you. Isn't that awesome? Well, some of you may be thinking, though, but Nathan still seems like Satan's head is not crushed. Still seems as though he is ruling, as it were. We can even think about the passage in the Bible that says the God of this world. We still have a lot to be afraid of, and that's quite true. But listen, listen to the Apostle Paul as he describes in Colossians 2, 14 and 15 what happened on the cross. This is the kind of, when Jesus 
crushed the head of the serpent on the cross and his heel is bruised. He's hurt. Listen to how Paul is, describes that. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities, there's the language, Satan, and put them to open shame. There's the curse. Genesis 3. How? By triumphing over them in him. There's the resurrection. There's the crushing of the head. And so, friends, Satan, you should know, he is defeated, and he knows it. He is disarmed, so we ought not fear him. So what we now witness in the world is the kind of last gasp of Satan to deceive people, to deceive the world. And soon enough, we will see Jesus just like those movies depict those great stories. Soon enough, we will see Jesus, and he will come quite literally on a white horse, and he will now come down and sweep away all the sin, the death, the badness of the world, and he will set up the heavens and the earth. That's what we wait for now. This is why we need to continue to Advent. Romans 16.20. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. This is, this is what Paul is waiting on, Jesus to return to finish it off. Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That sound familiar? Same language. Paul's just thinking about Genesis 3. And so that's why we can live on those dark streets, guys, with hope, because we have the everlasting light. The hopes and the fears of all the years are met in Jesus. And so, friend, if you struggle, uh, you should know soon enough Christ will return. He will finish the job. And we can have hope in that. And no matter what may come next, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Have hope in that. And soon enough, Christians, we will be back in Eden forever. Forever and ever. And we will enjoy Him and we will rejoice. I think, I, as I said, going back to the Isaiah sermon, uh, I can't help but think because it seems as though the serpent is crushed forever. Even in the new heavens, new earth, we find that the snake has to slither on the ground. I can't help but wonder in the new heavens and new earth if those, sa- those snakes will slither around and instead of us being scared of them, we will look at them and be reminded, you lost. And now we get to enjoy all of this. And so instead of being scared of them, we will sort of be reminded and rejoice at the sight of snakes in the new heavens we were. Reminded that they got beat and Christ won. And so this is worth celebrating on this Christmas day. Jesus Christ, the one that is the Son of God, which means he's holy. The Son of Man, which means that he has dominion. The Son of Abraham, which means that he is the hope of all peoples. The Son of David, which means he is the forever king. The son of Mary, which means he is a humble king. And the son of a woman, which means he crushes the head of Satan. And so we rejoice that we that are in Christ get to enjoy his peace this Christmas day. This down payment, this beginning of the end. And so let's pray and give thanks to him. Father, we thank you for the coming of Christ. Lord, we thank you that the Son of God became a man in order that we might become the sons of God. How good it is to know that he was faithful to the end. That he died, that he rose, that he ascended and will return. How good it is to know, Father, that the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in Jesus. They're not met in me. They're not met in our neighbor. They're not met in government. They're met in the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is our hope. And we can live with peace today as a result of that. And so we rejoice in the victory of Jesus. 
And as we go about celebrating the rest of this day, may we be reminded of the victory of Christ, the one that came, the one that was born in order to die. We love you, God, and thank you that you first loved us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.